0: Welcome to the full cast and crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo, and this is the podcast that explores predominantly new Hollywood films and TV shows from the 70s and the 80s that I personally grew up with, and maybe you did too. This week on the pod, we're going to be talking about the James Caan film, The Gambler. But before we get to that, just a couple quick notes. Number one, if you're new to the podcast, episode 125 might be a good place to start secondarily if that's a word if you want to pod yourself but you've been wondering why and how and if you even should feel free to email the pod at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com and request my how-to episode it's not published where you get podcasts it's available only on demand so demand it either by shooting me an email or hitting me up on any of the podcasts socials now Finally, check out a few of our most recent episodes. I'm really into the My Bodyguard episode. Uh, I'm really into the episode I did with Lee Wilkoff, where we discuss Carrie, a brilliant, brilliant Brian De Palma film. And Ted Jessup and I revisiting The classic neo-noir Deliverance is a great slice of filmmaking, and I believe I've actually coined a term, Canoe Noir, to describe Deliverance. I'd be interested if you can recommend any other Canoe Noir films to me, so please reach out and let me know. Okay, on to this week's episode. Really quickly, as we know, James Kahn died last week. There were a lot of great pieces about his passing, about his career, and as usually happens, In these moments, I find myself contemplating the career, the totality of the career, the great performances, the great films. And, you know, James Caan, it occurs to me, has such an interesting career. He's kind of more unique in a way and maybe a little bit more interesting and atypical than some of the other quote unquote stars of his era. You know, was James Caan ever really a movie star the way Robert Redford was or Paul Newman or Marlon Brando or even Al Pacino? You know, not really. Yet, he has such an outsized presence, I think, in our collective memory and awareness of actors because of a handful of performances, really maybe even one performance in terms of being Sonny and the godfather which of course is the one performance in his career to rule them all it is the most towering it's the most iconic it's the most talked about it's the most memed it's the most quoted of any of the roles that he that he acted in in his long long decades uh in tv and in films It's Sonny. I mean, Sonny is the role that he is going to be most remembered for. It's the role you think of first when you think of James Caan. It's a role that seemingly, if you follow kind of some of the the 70s and the 80s Caan stuff, uh, did the actor start to portray himself a bit like his most famous role? Perhaps Uh, some have said that in some of the obituaries and think pieces on his death. And also in his death, you start to contemplate The Godfather without James Caan as Sonny. And you realize as you do so that the delicate balance of the film and of the family in the film really doesn't work at all without him. It's one of those things where he's not the star of the movie. Marlon Brando is the star of the movie. Al Pacino then becomes the star of the back half of the first film and certainly is the star of the subsequent film. Could you have another actor playing Fredo? Probably not. But Fredo in Godfather 1, he doesn't have the kind of narrative responsibility that Sonny the character of Sonny does. Sonny's actions trigger monumental occurrences. Now Fredo's actions as we'll, you know, as you see in godfather 2 of course have monumental results mostly for poor fredo could you have another tom hagan could you have another actor play tom hagan A- as great and as amazing as robert duvall is in the role i'm gonna say yes you could see that could you have another michael well he almost did and his name was james conn you know that's who the studio wanted to play michael because he had a bit of a larger filmic presence at the time than al pacino did purportedly james khan himself and francis ford coppola all wanted pacino to play michael there was another actor contracted to play sonny who got bumped when they did this reshuffling but as iconic as everyone is in their roles And of course, it's the easiest thing to say, I can't imagine anyone playing any of those roles. Well, you know, you you have to imagine it because it's the fact that you end up with anyone in any role is just as much a matter of circumstance and coincidence as anything else. But when you contemplate all of those actors and you think about Al Pacino and Godfather one, you know, you have to look at it now. You have to look at it then. So when you're looking at it now, it's Al Pacino in The Godfather. And when you think about Al Pacino and The Godfather, you're not only thinking Godfather 1. You're thinking the totality of the two films. I'm ignoring the third film because it didn't occur. It didn't happen. We don't need to discuss it. But what you think of when you think of Al Pacino as Michael is you're thinking of the arc across those two films and how mind-blowingly amazing and controlled and reserved his performance is. As we've mentioned on the pod, you can go back and listen to the episode I did uh, regarding the book about the making of The Godfather, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli. And you can hear about how in the dailies and even to the extent of the filmmaking team itself and Coppola were not seeing from Al at the time what they thought they needed to see in order to make the film work. You know, and Coppola, somewhat in frustration, took Al Pacino aside and said, listen, I get it, but you're going to have to start showing something because he's so interior, he's so withdrawn, he's so hooded, he's so shaded that his performance, which I think we have to subscribe, we have to ascribe to Al Pacino having this concept because even Coppola doesn't take credit for creating this arc. But I think Pacino saw the way the character needed to evolve across the first film, and his performance was geared towards that. Now, of course, it's iconic. Now, of course, you can't imagine anyone else in the role. That's what you're going to say. That's what I'm going to say. But I'm going to posit here in James Caan's death that the Godfather without James Caan as Sonny is really the thing that doesn't work. Because the volatility the let's get him, uh the lack of premeditation the just lightning that james Kahn was able to evoke and embody at the time he's the more skilled actor and it's really his spark that i think carries that film and makes it uh so complimentary to to brando and pacino and John Cazale and Robert Duvall and all these brilliant, brilliant actors. But if you look at all those brilliant, brilliant actors, I don't think James Khan gets the credit that those guys all get as actors, even at the height of his career. I think people liked James Con. People thought James Con had uh, some juge, you know. But did they, did they do they and did they talk about James Conn? the way they talk about Al Pacino's acting or Robert Duvall's acting or Marlon Brando's acting or John Cazal's acting, may he rest in peace. You know, those guys all get discussed about in hushed tones about the quality of their acting. But with Sonny, it's almost kind of like we love the character, it's so funny to us, he's so violent and so out of control that we sort of don't contemplate that there's an actor underneath that who's doing that. And I guess on the occasion of his death, That's what I found myself thinking about as I thought about James Caan in The Godfather was, let's give him that credit for being in a film of people who are playing things very close to the vest, right? Every single person I just mentioned, with the exception of Fredo, doesn't really have much to play either close to the vest or out in the open. But Tom Hagen, Michael, Brando, everybody is has an interior thing going on and they're not showing their cards. Well, Sonny is all cards. He might as well be wearing a suit of cards as much as he's ends up wearing a suit of squibs in the toll booth scene. And I'm going to say he deserves credit as an actor in that film more than I think we give him credit for another episode of the podcast that we did that featured a James Conn film was my episode on thief, which I did with my friend James Kittle Highly recommend that as well. I love the film Thief. I love the films of Michael Mann. It's such a great pairing between director and actor. It's such a great use of James Caan as well. And I think that's what I'm coming to realize as I'm sifting through his filmography from the 70s and beyond is there are a handful of directors who really understood and got James Caan as a person and as an actor and I think utilized him particularly well. Thief is definitely one of those. It was James Kahn's favorite favorite of all of his roles uh, over Sonny and the Godfather, even as much as he of course realized what good fortune it was to have been Sonny and the Godfather. Famously, James Kahn was voted New York Italian of the Year twice on the heels of being Sonny in the Godfather, even though he wasn't Italian. Which many people still don't know. People think of James Caan as the uber Italian. Well, he's not. We're going to talk about that as we get into talking about the film that I want to mention briefly today. So when you think of the great James Caan roles, when I think of Thief and when I think of his performance as Sonny, he's so unique. He's so different than a lot of the other male stars of his era and his time and that's his thing that's what he brought to the fore you know he's kind of you know he's not a character actor in the sense he's he's kind of always james (laughs) con you know he's he's variations of james con and i guess you know a lot of our biggest movie stars that's the case um the qualities that james con the words james con bring to mind are the qualities that he brought to bear in a lot of these roles So if you look at Godfather 2, you know, you really have to have De Niro added his brilliant performance. And then you have like where Pacino is going in 2, which is even more amazing, I think, than where he goes in 1. But you really need both of those things happening in 2 to make up for the lack of the crackling energy and threat that Sonny possesses in the first film. And it's the the fact that Sonny is largely absent except for a flashback scene in 2. That I think we also have to account for, but like I said, Khan was never a movie star in the way De Niro or Pacino are, or even that Robert Duvall continues to be. You know, he wasn't avuncular on screen, even his comedic roles, of which there are many really funny ones, like like many like De Niro. Right, he's a he, he's also a great comic actor. Uh, but even in those comedic roles, he, he's he's still bristly. He's still edgy, and he doesn't really let you in. Uh, look at look at Elf, for example, which is a big hit, not a great film. Somewhat ridiculous plot line where he's like this children's book publisher, and you know, it, is it funny? Yes, but. There's a center that we never get from James Kahn in all these movies. There's something withheld and that's probably why he's remained interesting for so many decades. Uh, Again, talking about the on-screen work, not so much the publicity stuff of which we'll talk a bit more about in a second, but when you think about James Kahn on screen, what are the words that come to mind? I think violence, decency, compassion, humor, coldness, flare. all of these almost contradictory things are kind of balled up in this guy this wiry frame these those coat hanger shoulders covered in a, a fine pelt of fur like De Niro as I said he could be brilliantly funny in comedies but he could also plumb really deep depths in drama and unlike De Niro James Conn worked in tv when he had to you know in the 90s you guys probably don't remember this, but I had occasion to actually visit the set of the of the TV series Las Vegas, and it was kind of a big deal at the time that James Caan was doing television. This was before streaming and Netflix, and before any actor, you know, with any kind of pedigree and reputation, had their own dream pet project, lavishly funded television series. Like it was, it was unusual for someone of his stature to use that phrase in Hollywood which i think is so funny because at the time his stature was pretty pedestrian if you listen to his his own words about the demons he struggled with in his life drug addiction depression uh, financial ruin career uh doors closed i mean he, he didn't have a lot going on yet. it was even still a big deal for him to be doing television so the longevity of his career means that he also had these eras, and I think that's part of when a big star like this dies. You know, you you follow their life. It's such a weird thing to have movie stars and to not know them, but to watch them on screen and then to be aware off screen of all the things that happen in people's lives, the messy things, the wonderful things, the kids that we're so proud of. Uh, the personal troubles and the foibles, the unfortunate interviews, the unfortunate chapters. I mean, this James Conn lived in the Playboy Mansion after one of his divorces. That can't be good. I mean, you could probably think that sounds good, I guess, as an actor in the 70s and 80s. I'm sure it was a hell of a lot of fun for him. But God, it's it, the grotto sounds like a 18th circle of hell pit of isolation loneliness and depression uh not a you know cavorting parade of nymphs dewy-eyed and glistening in the you know late afternoon california sunshine i'm sure it's a bit more down market than anyone would have you believe so he also did his own unfortunate but also kind of funny playboy interview which every star of that era comes out sounding horrible in by the way I mean, how many have we revisited recently from, I don't know, Brando, John Wayne? I mean, rule of thumb, don't do a Playboy interview actors, okay? It never goes well. But it's these chapters, right, that that, that afford us the opportunity to have this relationship with these careers. You know, you're looking at again now with Tom Cruise and uh, Top Gun, Maverick, you know, it's so successful because it's a good movie. And it's incredibly technologically well-made, but it also has a really accessible heart. But a part of a reason why it's also so big is that Tom Cruise is 60 and we've spent 50 years watching Tom Cruise on screen. And we've spent 50 years watching Tom Cruise go through various chapters of life. And whether you agree with them or not, doesn't really matter. Nobody really cares what you and I think. doesn't matter. It's his life and how he chooses to live it. But the Scientology, the jumping on the couches, the the Katie Holmes, the you know the whole thing. It's all part of it, right? And that he, he, there's a part of this where you see this guy on screen at sixty, and he's not just the star. He's the producer. He's he's making big, big budget pictures that are good at a time when the only other really big, big budget pictures are the Marvel movies, and those aren't good. And so part of our appreciation, or at least part of my appreciation for Tom Cruise in the moment is, he's a big time movie star, and he's, he's invested in the movies, and he's using all of his skills and all of his resources to not put the body in the coffin like they do in The Godfather. He's using it to further the medium and the message and to get people to go to the movies, and it worked. Top Gun Mavericks made a billion dollars in counting, and it is not yet streaming. Now, at the same time, when Netflix is having difficulties and is spending $17 billion a year on content with ever-reduced results of hits and laying off staffers looking for a partner to introduce ads onto the platform, something they said they would never do, you know, all of a sudden you're starting to get a sense that maybe the big picture of streaming and theater going and all this stuff is not quite as simplistic as we've been told, that one is dying out and the other is going to become ascendant. Anyway, so as I said, James Caan, he went from being really one of the number one box office guys in the country to being flat broke, addicted, out of work, by his own admission, consorting with Heidi Fleiss and her coterie of professional hookers, doing mounds and mounds and mounds of cocaine. He had interventions. He was friends with mobsters. He turned down starring roles in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Apocalypse Now, and Kramer Versus Kramer. He went to rehab. Apparently, he got sober in 1994. I read that in one interview. I don't know if that remained true. He was saved by his old Hofstra University pal, Francis Ford Coppola, once again, who offered him the film Gardens of Stone when he was at his absolute down and outest. He was given another chance by another friend, Rob Reiner, which turned into misery. And that led to Honeymoon in Vegas. Now, it's hard to remember now, but I remember when Honeymoon in Vegas came out. That was a big hit. And James Caan is hilarious in Honeymoon in Vegas. I think akin to De Niro being in Meet the Fockers, that was kind of the first... um, time i remember seeing james con's comedy chops and just realizing how brilliant they were that was a big movie when it came out and he was great in that there's a facebook page that i (laughs) that i stalk sometimes it's called crew stories and these are people that work in production mostly kind of below the line you know set people and uh, camera operators crafty people Electricians, grips, what have you. And it's a place where, if you sift through with the right kind of comb, it can be really fascinating to hear about stars, directors, how things were done. Of course, it's also filled with as much trashy gossip and character assassination as anything else on the internet. You have to kind of sift through the predictable or perhaps even justified handful of people who, on the occasion of the death of someone like James Caan, still have negative things that they feel they want to leap forward. Into the fray with. But if you sift through all that stuff and you read the James Conn thread there, in the end you come away with a guy who's been working in the business for decades, right? And he does not suffer fools gladly, but always uh to the defense of the working people on the set. And he always was prepared himself. He knew his lines. He knew the business of filmmaking. And he didn't brook with the pretentious bullshit at the expense of the working people on the set. And there's many, many anecdotes there that I think are telling and kind of give you the complete picture, even when balanced off by a few other people who have whatever axe to grind. I saw one post that was pretty funny. Some guy was like, uh, I met Mr. Khan. He was rude to me. And he spelled it C-O-N-N. So of course I had to post. Well, maybe he was a little ticked off that you kept misspelling his name. Uh, so yeah, I'm as guilty as anyone else for trolling on the internet. So on the occasion of James Kahn's death, I thought here I am, you know, I do this podcast. It's this guy is firmly in the era that the podcast is centered on. I've got to find something in his filmography that I haven't seen before. Something from my era, the late seventies, something James Kahn in quotes, you know, I've seen rollerball, Uh, which is a bit overpraised for uh, how good a film it really is it's not it's not a great film it's uh it's got a pretty absurd premise but even in that he's very good he he embodies this bizarrely futuristic world better than you might think so i'm looking through his filmography and i settled on a film called the gambler perhaps it's familiar to you it's been familiar to me but it's something i'd never seen you know i I have seen the title recommended to me on Amazon forever. But in that mysterious way that we or I leave gaps in our film going experiences, I'd never I'd never made the decision to watch it. And I realized, which is kind of ironic because I'm about to discuss a film about uh, degenerate gambling and its consequences on someone. Well, my hit, my juice, my gambling is in finding a movie I've never seen. And it's experiencing the dawning awareness as I'm watching however many minutes it takes me to watch to realize, oh, this is a film I'm going to do on the pod. It is like a drug, and it's it's an elusive feeling. I had it again recently when I rescreened screened um, My Bodyguard, uh, and then given the Matt Dillon connection, that put me back to a film that I have seen and loved, but that I hadn't seen in quite a while, Over the Edge, which I'm going to do on the podcast with my friend Rick Brown very soon. When I'm watching one of these films and it's you have this it it is like a drug washing over you you're kind of like it is good it's it's there's stuff to talk about here and i had that in spades no pun intended when i watched the gambler it's an amazing and powerful film brilliantly directed by carol rice and it's easily the deepest and i'm gonna say best role that james Kahn ever had yes sunny is forever iconic we get it but in terms of what james conn gets to do as sunny it's a pretty limited palette in thief he gets to do a lot more he gets to be an ex-con whose life experiences and choices are informed by his institutional life his correctional life and his code first and foremost his relationship with Tuesday Weld, it's heartbreaking. It, it affords him the chance to do some things he doesn't normally get to do as they put a family together. His friendship uh, with Jim Belushi is is his working friendship, his his work and friend relationship with Jim Belushi in the film affords plenty of opportunity for both his style that the way he wears clothes, these brilliant Michael Mann monologues um he gets to do a lot and it is a great role and a great performance but i'm gonna say the gambler that's the that's the best role i think james conn ever had to be honest with you i'm watching this film which is the story of a university professor who has a desperate gambling addiction who through fairly pedestrian circumstances gets into a jam with some guys you don't want to owe money to to the tune of $44,000, which is not an insurmountable situation for someone in the James Caan character's position, and that he obviously comes from this large, wealthy Jewish family, which is part of the story of the film. And it's part of Carl Car- Rise's story, um, who was a Czechoslovakian filmmaker who emigrated to the United Kingdom and worked most of his career in Great Britain, uh, but was also Jewish. And as I said, it's part of James Kahn's story. James Kahn is the son of a German emigre Jewish butcher. And James Kahn wasn't Italian. He was Jewish. Yet in this role, he's able to kind of lean into that a little bit in a way that, I to my awareness, at least he never has in any other film. And in this film, in The Gambler, so it's He's, he, he owes 44 grand to the mob. <laughs> he goes to his mother and tries to borrow the money. Their relationship is sort of fascinatingly portrayed with this kind of undercurrent of uh, almost unrequited romance on the mother's part. Um, she eventually gives him the money. He has a grandfather who's obviously very, very wealthy and very, very powerful, but he doesn't tap him pointedly for the solution at first there's a great turn in the end where that comes uh back which i'll talk about in a second but in this first part of the movie where he's in desperate gambling trouble and he needs funds you can see him thinking about it that it would be very easy for him to ask his grandfather but he doesn't instead he makes this kind of performative speech at his grandfather's birthday party and in the in the end he heartbreakingly gets the money from his mother Uh, whom he beats in tennis in a fascinating scene. Now, amongst the other things James Kahn gets to do in this movie, he plays real tennis. He plays real basketball. In his university setting, he teaches Dostoevsky, of course, and William Carlos Williams. And you know what? He does it believably. Like, I think sometimes when you see actors portraying university professors in films, the shorthand with which directors often indicate professor are so silly, right? It's always this like, either enraptured or bored audience in a auditorium setting. People are leaning on their hands or doodling in their notebooks. There's some beautiful co-eds gazing, you know, magnanimously at the erudite and witty professor who's engaged in this impossible monologue that can't possibly be off the cuff and off the top of his head, right. It's been written by writers and put into his mouth. It's always kind of the same. And there's a little bit of that in here, but I gotta say he does it pretty damn convincingly. Like, You don't get the feeling that James Kahn doesn't understand what he's talking about when he's talking about William Carlos Williams and Dostoevsky. But at the same time, it's James Kahn. So it's not pretentious. He's like preternaturally incapable of pretension. So he gets to do that. Play tennis, play basketball, teach thick and thorny texts. He romances Lauren Hutton. He teases Pauly Sorvino. He torturously navigates his jewish immigrant family he gambles first with his own money then with his mother's money and finally with his own life and the film ends on this really daringly obtuse image that relies totally on both believable special effects makeup makeup and a, a single Complicated, fleeting expression that runs across James Kant's face as he looks at himself in a mirror. What What is the expression? Well, we don't really know as viewers. I can tell you that it contains elements of exhilaration, of accomplishment, of disgust, and all of this is wordless and runs across his face as he looks at himself in the mirror after being slashed in the face by a prostitute. It's incredible. It's an incredible ending, and in short, it's a James Toback script. So that tells you a bit something of the world we're living in. James Toback also was an overeducated uh, Harvard type who loved to be involved in the underground of gambling and low life in New York City. Uh, but it's a really good screenplay. And, you know, the part that I really r- related to was, was kind of reading about Carol Rice, the director. Uh, and knowing and, and hearing James Caan talk and write about uh, his, his own Jewish background and that of his parents, you know, that's really shot through this film. On the one hand, it's this kind of like very 70s New York City gambling film with tough guys and, you know, mobsters, but it's all really believably laid out. But then you also have this kind of interesting part with the grandfather and the mother and James Kahn and this Jewish backstory and the backstory that obviously Carol Rice really understands and feels. And man, it's really good. And James Kahn is so, so good in this. It has a few, I guess, I don't know if they're tone deaf. Um, I actually thought his romance with Lauren Hutton, like Lauren Hutton has a pretty thankless uh, task in this film, but she's actually really compelling and good. And, and I think human. And, and she's great with Khan, even though the screenplay kind of requires him or the man himself was so sort of closed off that there's never true connection there. But that's kind of the point, I think. And I think Carol Rice, James Toback, the producers, whoever got James Khan in this film, you know, much like Michael Mann recognized that this is what directors do, they use actors who are open, who have certain open compartments and certain closed compartments. And when they put them in a film where the actor's open compartments and closed compartments exactly complement what's gonna be on the screen, well, many famous directors have said, you know, we've done 50% of the work in the casting right there. That's the case in this movie. So it's a great 70s movie, it's got great ambiance, it's got great character actors all over it, up and down. Vic Tabak, really convincing at the end uh really young paul sorvino on and on so it's a great 70s movie it's a great james conn movie it's a great gambling movie it's a great new york movie but it's also got more it's got this it's it's brilliantly directed by carol rice it's it's brilliantly shot it it's it's wonderfully edited and it's got this incredible score by jerry fielding whose work uh you know, you're going to want to go check out. I mean, Jerry Fielding is a legendary uh, film composer and he is unique, I think, for really kind of uh, working in a lot of kind of uh, new Hollywood films of the era, violent films, but his scores are always so unique and he's kind of the most interesting scorer of films once you start paying attention to, Uh, Some of his stuff, you know, he did television themes, he did uh, all kinds of things. He, you know, he, he was nominated for Academy Award for, I think, three movies, Uh, the Wild Bunch, Straw Dogs and the Outlaw Josie Wales. Um, So his, his scores are, I guess, kind of, you know, they, they're, they, they have elements of, of jazz and of other different types of, um different types of music and he too was this child of uh, russian-born american jews and i think his work in the film as well is part of this core of something that i kind of found myself connecting to again because i think i was reading about james khan and uh, being me thinking about the dichotomy between his image maybe his self-image and the reality of the man himself so it's a really interesting film. I, I think you're going to enjoy it if you haven't seen it. Um, and this was Carol Rise's first film made in America, which is kind of astounding for how good it is in using these American actors with certain vernaculars and, and the framework of the system that he's kind of working in, given his background in, in British documentaries and also the kitchen sink movement of the early 60s in the UK. He's coming from a completely different place. And for the movie to work as well as it does and to be sort of as confident in the filmmaking as it is, uh, and to have an actual almost European feeling to what in other hands might be not a B picture, but certainly sort of a narrower lane. And so I think it's a really fascinating movie. After The Gambler, uh, Carol Rice would make... uh, the Nick Nolte neo-noir who'll stop the rain. Probably his most famous film is The French Lieutenant's Woman. And he also did Sweet Dreams, which is a movie about the country singer Patsy Cline, which starred Jessica Lange and Ed Harris. And then, interestingly, for the rest of his life, he kind of left films behind and he really concentrated on directing plays in London, Dublin, and Paris. I want to watch more Carol Rice films after seeing this. I guess that's the greatest compliment I could pay to the director is that, He made a really interesting and uh, unusual film, even for the era. And The Gambler is a film where the subtext is as interesting and important as the text itself. So I really enjoyed it. Uh, Oh, I also wanted to shout out Burt Young. Oh my God, how great is Burt Young ever in anything still to this day? He's got a little turn in this. His slyness, his sense of humor... Uh, the fact that he's not taking himself or the job too seriously, it's so well cast and he's he's kind of brilliantly uh, used. And he's one of those joys of 70s cinema to me. Whenever I can see a great Burt Young moment, I'm all over it. Um, and Emmett Walsh is in this movie. <laughs> James Woods is in this movie as a nerdy, annoying bank officer. There's just Stuart Margolin. Okay. Rockford Files. I mean, everything in this film connects to an episode of this podcast, by the way. Stuart Margolin um, has a brief, funny role. Uh, Richard Ferraranggi is in this movie. Antonio Fargus <laughs> is in this movie. You know, so it's almost got like an exploitation type film cast in places, but it's James Caan. He's the center. He's in every frame. And it's because of the confidence that James Kahn has and the way in which he and the director are working, it, it transcends it. And, and it's it's his best film performance in terms of the breadth of the things he gets to do and the arc that he's allowed to go through. It was really a fitting eulogy film to watch while contemplating the death of James Kahn and sifting through all the materials. And I wanted to share with you some of what I found fascinating, interesting about the movie. I'm going to leave it there for today. Please check out The Gambler. You can find it on demand almost anywhere. And stay tuned as we have some exciting episodes coming up in the near future. And as always, thank you so, so much for listening to the full cast and crew podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, people are so complimentary. It's weird. You know, three years in. And I feel like we're kind of getting a bit of a bump right now in appreciation and attention. And I think it's wonderful to experience putting the work in, building on the efforts of my former co-host, Chris, and all that he did to build the foundation of the podcast, keeping it alive for all of you kind of finding the sweet spot niche as we go on here of the films that I want to talk about that I think you want to hear about. So it's been a great pleasure and a great joy. And I look forward to continuing for many, many more episodes to come. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.